Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Peter Rojas, partner at Betaworks Ventures. How's it going, Peter? Hey, thanks for having me on. Sure, sure. Thanks for joining me. So to get started, I would love to dive into your professional background. Uh, yeah, it was a, a sort of a, a long and winding path, I think, uh, for me getting into uh, venture. But um, I actually started off as a journalist in the late 90s. I was in San Francisco for the first dot-com boom uh, and joined a magazine called Red Herring in 1999. Uh, and um, at the time, it was a relatively small magazine. I think it was the seventh or eighth person to join the editorial team. Uh, and was a senior editor um, focusing on, uh, or no, it was associate editor actually at the time, senior associate editor, associate editor. And I was focusing on um, emerging markets and emerging uh, technology. And so uh, was the person who would, you know, go to like Nepal or South Africa to figure out how people were using the internet, uh, how companies were using the internet and building new kinds of technology businesses. Uh, and um, when the bubble burst in 2001, I ended up getting laid off like um, almost everybody else at the time. Yeah. Red Herring had grown from, I think I was like employee number seven, editorial employee number seven or eight. I think we'd grown to 60 or 70 people on the editorial team at that point in two years, grew really fast. The magazine grew from being like this thick to like thicker than like the September issue of Vogue, which I don't know if that's still a thing, but uh, <laughs> um you know, like 800 page issues in the magazine, something like that. Some people will get the reference. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so um, ended up moving to New York uh, a little bit later. I was actually supposed to move on September 11th, 2001, and moving about three weeks later. And um, in 2002, joined up with an old friend of mine named Nick Denton, to, who had started a company called Moreover, which is focused on RSS uh, and news syndication. And um, we decided to start a new venture called Gizmodo, which ended up being the flagship um, first property for Gawker Media. Uh, and, um, you know, Gizmodo was a, uh, you know, it was really the first technology blog. Uh, it was uh, an interesting experiment and something that, um, you know, me sort of taking this hunch I had about technology becoming a new form of pop culture and trying to create a, an editorial product that, um, you know, that took advantage of that, uh, that, that leaned into that. And I was able to take advantage of the fact that with, um, you know, this new kind of blogging technology, I was able to self-publish for basically, you know, nothing, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and build something that was, it was just me, uh, writing, uh, every day, all the time. I didn't take a break for, uh, the, almost the entire two years that I was doing it until I left to start Weblogs Inc. Uh, and then uh, in 2004, left to create a new blogging network with Jason Calcanis and Brian Alvey called Weblogs Inc. And there I was the chief editorial officer, chief chief content officer, and then also personally uh, created and edited two of the uh, bigger properties there, one called Engadget, uh, which was a technology and gadget blog, and then Joystick, which was the very first video game blog. And uh, that business grew really, really fast and ended up being acquired by AOL about 18 months after we launched. And uh, I continued to oversee that network of properties for AOL and then also launched a bunch of new ones for them before I left in 2008. I'm trying to remember, I get all the dates wrong. This may be more long-winded than you maybe intended. And, uh, and started a social commerce company, um, which uh, ended up being acquired by AOL uh, in 2013. And so uh, I was uh, took on the two roles at AOL. One was as a head of strategy, VP of strategy for them, uh, working across the different properties and then also running experimental product development. For them so incubating new things uh in fact the reason i ended up having this incubator there is because i said um we needed to be more like betaworks <laughs> at aol and and trying to have a more startup like product development process um and i've known betaworks you know really well uh they were an investor in my last company uh and that last company which was acquired by aol and i know john borthwick the founder of betaworks since uh 2003 when he was the cto of aol time warner mm -hmm. so um had a long history together. And um, when I, uh, my earnout was coming up and I was thinking about what to do next, um, John told me about his plans to spin out uh, an actual venture fund out of Betaworks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to date, Betaworks had been a, a studio which incubated new companies, Giphy, Chartbeat, Bitly, uh, TweetDeck, uh, among, Dots among them. Uh, and then also invested off the balance sheet of the studio, which was an LLC. And so never had a proper fund, um, but did a bunch of like really successful investor investments. First check in the Tumblr, investor in Everlane, investor in Venmo, investor in Medium, investor in Kickstarter, investor in GroupMe. Pretty uh, small companies, most of those. Yeah, <laughs> uh, did really, really, really well. Uh, and um, 
but I never had a proper venture fund. And so I joined with him and Matt Hartman, who was the, uh, running the, the investment program at Betaworks at the time to create Betaworks Ventures. We're now in our second fund, uh, and we've been investing in the future of how we live, work, and play online for now uh, six years. Um, yeah, about six years. I guess the first fund was launched in 2016, so five years. And um, I've been uh, you know, leading a lot of our gaming, spatial computing, AI, ML, and audio investments uh, for them, uh, among other things. Okay, so there are tons of cultural, or, or rather pop cultural and tech blogs out today, you know, but at the time, Gizmodo was obviously like very innovative uh, and, and new. And so how do you see the role of these blogs today, especially given there are so many more of them today yeah. than there were in the past? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the most helpful framing is to think about blogs as um, being on a continuum. Uh, of editorial products, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, the way I kind of think about it is, uh, you know, when I joined Red Herring in 1999, we paid a million dollars for a CMS, our content management system for online publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started Gizmodo, we paid, I think, $500 for moving. Wow. Um, now, uh, CMSs are free, right? They're yeah, free, yeah. just in, not just in the form of WordPress, but Facebook is a CMS. Mm-hmm. Twitter is a CMS. Uh, you know, we're, we're inundated with ways to publish, right? And self-publish. Um, and there are, uh, you know, degrees of control along that spectrum, so to speak. You have a lot less control uh, over what you publish and, and, the, and how it's presented on Twitter and Facebook than you do if you, you know, do an install yourself on WordPress mm-hmm. or, you know, write your own uh, CMS or something like that, uh, you know, which people still do. But, uh, you know, so so I think that, we're in an environment where, um, you know, blogging has is still important, but it has morphed in a lot of and, and changed into a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, the stuff that people are publishing and sharing on Twitter is a form of blogging, right? Um, and you know, especially when you think about threading and, and people um, designing, you know, content which is you know able to be atomized and really easily shared. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, blogging is really about um, has always been about democratizing you know, people's ability to, to publish, right. About, about opening it up to as many people as possible. Now we have found that there are some, you know, negative implications for that, right. For getting everybody online. And I think, um, you know, the issue of how do you manage the fire hose of content? Um, you know, we solved that with an algorithm and then created a whole other set of problems. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, some part of me is sort of um, nostalgic for the simpler days when, you just had an RSS reader. I still use an RSS reader, but like you had an RSS reader, you subscribed to some blogs and you know, you read what people wrote and you liked it. Uh, and it was, some, and you posted a comment maybe, or you, or you linked to their blog on your blog. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, our Gizmodo and Engadget, you know, as important, they were, I think, bigger fish in a smaller pond yeah. 15 years ago. Um, but the pond has gotten a lot bigger. And I think, um, you know, there's a, so many other different ways that people are able to communicate and, and, uh, and share and, uh, and, and be, you know, get their ideas and thoughts out there, which I'm generally in favor of. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, I think one of the other changes is that a lot of what's interesting about technology right now is not necessarily about hardware or devices. Yeah. It's about, um, you know, apps and services and games and, um, you know, the new ways in which we're able to, you know, connect and express ourselves. So, you know, in Gadget, when I was there, we wouldn't have written about, we, we basically stay on a hardware focused. You know, the reality is it's, you know, phones, you know, are not that exciting anymore <laughs> compared with, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but also we don't have as much of a diversity of different kinds of products, you know, used to have phones and mp3 players and you know like all these things kind of got absorbed by one device yeah uh and laptops are obviously not interesting at all anymore <laughs> uh, and so um you know it, it's i think that you know engadget and gizmodo kind of hit this moment when um you know kind of after the ipod when consumer electronics really broke out and became a mass market pop culture phenomenon phenomenon uh and uh and it's something that you know, that moment is definitely passed. We've all, we're all tech nerds now. We're all gadget nerds now. Um, And so it means that the, uh, you know, the, the importance or vitality of Engadget and Gizmodo are maybe diluted. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like we won the war, so to speak. 
Yeah, um, definitely. I agree. Yeah. Like the pie has definitely gotten bigger uh, altogether. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, I, and I just remember like, you know, carrying around a, a smartphone in 2004, uh, 2003, 2004, and, you know, people telling me, well, I'll never use something like that. <laughs> and I'm like, I, you know, I think you will. Um, it's, uh, you know, like I'm watching, you know, like I'm watching the matrix on my trio 600, <laughs> you know, like it, it's like, this is cool, you know, like, yeah. um, uh, and being able to check my email without having to get out of bed was amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's a double-edged sword, of course, but, um, but at the time it seemed great. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, you know, I think that like, we've ended up in a place where, you know, we are all technologists. Um, we are all, you know, I don't, I mean, it's say we're all nerds. Cause I, I, I don't necessarily like, like the implications of that, but I think yeah, that we have yeah. all, you know, um, integrated technology into our lives in a way that 20 years ago, few people would have felt confident in predicting. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then just on Joystick, you know, you mentioned Joystick. What was the first video game sort of like blog or publication? It was the first publication's first blog, though. Sure, for, yeah, first blog. Um, why did you think it was a good time to introduce something like Joystick at the time that you did? Um, so, you know, part of it was actually um, about making things easier to manage within Gadget. This is sound funny, but we had a video game section on Engadget. And, you know, the volume of games that get in. So at the time, you know, Engadget was just a reverse chronological feed of posts. Yeah. That was what blogs were. We didn't have all this fancy homepage yeah. algorithm and algorithms or, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, so, and, and certainly like most people were consuming the site just by going to it and scrolling down. Right. It wasn't um, now where you like saw a post on Facebook or in, or in Twitter and didn't really matter what was on the homepage. Mm-hmm. Um, so we cared a lot about the homepage experience and we realized that like, it probably wasn't going to work for has, us to have something where it was, you know, 50% new games and 50% gadgets or two thirds games. Um, Cause there were just so many games being announced at the time, right, right. you know, especially cause we were heading into, you know, the Xbox 360, I think was announced in 2000, when launched in 2005, mm-hmm. PlayStation three in 2006. And so, you know, it, it was already, even before those, that, generation turn like there was already just so much activity around gaming and so we really said let's take the gaming section of Engadget and turn it into a blog its own blog and have its own you know we'll have some crossover in fact there were posts that were cross-posted to both sites at the time and we do things like if we went to e3 we would um you know do joint live blogs of like you know the big press conferences like nintendo and xbox Mm -hmm. and and uh playstation uh, but, um, and it was fun to like have the two teams, you know, work together on stuff, Yeah. but, um, but by and large, it was, it was really a practical consideration more than anything else. <laughs> there was no question of, is this important or timely or of interest? It was just, uh, uh, we knew that it was important. We knew that there were a lot of people interested in video games. Yeah. It was a, for practical considerations, it should be two sites. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Got to give the people what they want. <laughs> you know, a lot of people read both, but there were some people like, I just not interested in like every new laptop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, I think some people thought, you know, AOL kind of just like died <laughs> at some point and probably aren't aware that AOL actually was building, you know, pretty big media business. And, you know, clearly y- you were part of that. And so what was it like working at AOL in, you know, what many people would consider sort of the later days um, for AOL? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, you know, AOL had, um, you know, it's cool that the AOL Time Warner um, merger hadn't worked. Uh, and, you know, this original idea that they were going to merge, um, you know, like the content, the media side of Time Warner and the distribution side of, of AOL, it was just not executed very well. The two sides did not get along. Um, and so there was this sort of, you know, conscious uncoupling that was going on of, of the two businesses and, yeah. and with the idea of, you know, spinning out AOL spinning AOL back out of the business, right? Mm-hmm. And so John Miller was brought in uh, to run a, run what run AOL, right? And, yeah. and figure out like where to take things. It was clear the dial-up business was dying. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, it still generated a ton. I mean, even I, when I came back the second time, it still was generating an enormous amount of cap. Oh, like, wow. uh, I don't know about today, but it was at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, John Miller, you know, did the, John did the work of, well, let me figure out like, where can we take things? And he, mm-hmm. he said, I think that the future is being a digital media business mm-hmm. and, um, you know, buying well blogs Inc was sort of part of like, a, like, I don't want to say the cornerstone, but it was like part of that strategy. Mm-hmm. And so we brought with them, you know, a 
fast growing media category, right? Business um, with blogging, but also a content management system. It all comes back to CMSs, yeah. um, you know, a, a, a CMS, which they were able to bring to all of the other properties at AOL. I mean, they had at the time this incredibly, um, it was just a terrible CMS called Big Bowl. I'm not sure it was called Big Bowl, but it was terrible. Yeah, it's like a yeah. big bowl of crap. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was like really hard. It was just like, you know, even at the time, I mean, in 2004, it was, or 2005 at the time, it was just, it was, it was really hard to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we had was like lighter, you know, more flexible, um, fast. Uh, and um, it was this, at the time, it was a modern CMS. Uh, and, um, and so I think, you know, coming in, there was definitely, um, you know, there was definitely some hostility from people that had been at AOL for a long time of trying to, you know, of sort of like, hey, like we just, you know, like we've been successful as this dial-up business and we have like a small search business and we have the mail business and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't like this other thing that's kind of coming in and, and uh, you know, but most people were like pretty welcoming and pretty excited. A lot of people were fans of like, you know, Engadget and other Weblogs Inc. Right. So I, I would say it was an interesting time to be there. I, I, I you know, the thing that was, just most disappointing is that John was not given the opportunity to really, um, he wasn't given enough time to fully execute against his vision. Mm -hmm. And so he was removed. I think I'd been there about two years uh, after he, and then he was, you know, removed and they brought in um, a new team that was just like, you know, almost killed the company. They bought Beba and, um, you know, they, they almost, they literally almost killed the company, came very, very (laughs) close to killing the company. And, um, and so, you know, that's when I started to actually feel out of place at AOL is after yeah. John left, um, because, you know, I had a good relation with him. Uh, but I also think that he just really understood what, you know, we were all trying to do, which is to build a next generation media business. And that it was going to be hard. It was going to take time and it needed, you know, support. And he was the person who sort of provided cover for that effort. And when he was gone, after he was pushed out, it was clear that like, you know, there wasn't going to be as much cover to let this business develop in the way that it needs to develop. Yeah. And I think that there is a different path that AOL could have gone on where it would have been, a, you know, a much healthier business mm-hmm. um, than it turned out to be. And when, you know, when Tim Armstrong came in, he did a lot to fix a lot of the problems, but, you know, you just lose years. And, and frankly, the like $700 million they spent on Bebo, you don't get back. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, that was really the thing that, um, I think permanently hamstrung the company was they just lost too many years at a critical time. Yeah. You really hate to see that when a company, you know, is at a crucial sort of turning point for the business and they blow it all on a misinformed acquisition, you know, to, to be polite. Oh, it, was, it actually also killed AIM in the process, which if you think about it, you know, AIM should be a $20 billion business today, oh, right? Yeah. Like they owned instant messaging over yeah. the top, you know, like OTT messaging, they owned it. Now they needed to rebuild AIM on a, on you know a new kind of infrastructure right. to make it suitable for mobile. Um, and people forget that AOL was actually an, a partner for the launch of the App Store um, with Apple. Oh, I and, didn't even know that. Yeah, and AIM was part of that. And AIM was actually supposed to be like part of what powered like iMessage. Or something. I'm trying to remember the exact details, but like you know there was a moment when like you know AIM was still really really popular, and yeah. they had not, if they invested made the right investments behind it and you know, paid off some of the technical debt, it could have continued to be really, you know, really huge business at the future of the business, arguably. Um, instead, what they did is they didn't invest in it. And then they tried to merge Bebo with AIM. And that's really the, like, I remember Tim showing me the chart where he's like, <laughs> here's where AIM went off the cliff is when we tried to like merge it with Bebo and like yeah, all the yeah. AIM users was like, we're not interested in this. And all the Bebo users were like, we don't even know what this is. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, it was a, it was just a really bad strategic decision that, uh, you know, the, the, the executive, Ron and Randy were the, the two uh, president and CEO at the time, and they didn't last very long. That's a really good point, though. You know, AIM, you could easily envision it being its own standalone thing today. Um, you know, just like a WhatsApp or even, you know, like how Facebook Messenger is trying to increasingly be uh, its own standalone thing. Um, how big did AIM actually get in terms of users? Do you have any rough sense? Oh, I, it was, I mean, it was really big. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I know it was at least, I mean, it, it was definitely, I, I think it had to be in the low hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember because there was a point when they asked me if I wanted to take it over. And I went and found the analytics for it and it was, had dropped so much, <laughs> you know, um, it had dropped, it was like, you know, it's still like 10 or 20 million, I think when I got to it and yeah. it had lost like 
95% of its users Jeez. or something like that at that point. Yeah, it, there was, a, but it was, and you think about how much smaller the internet was then. So to have had, you know, 140 million, you know, monthly active users or whatever it was um, at a time when the internet was so much smaller than it is today was, it was really substantial. They just, they just did, they, they really did need to update the architecture to make it work on mobile devices. Yeah. That was the biggest thing that they, they never really invested in really, never really did. Yeah. Well, RIP to the away message. Um, <laughs> so at some point you decided to, you know, make a transition from being an entrepreneur and an operator and to become an investor full-time. And so what are some of the factors that really motivated that change for you? I think part of it was, um, you know, having continuing to have a really strong intellectual interest in where technology is going and um, being excited about new products and and the process of like discovering them and playing with them and 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 figuring them out, um, and also having a pretty good experience, you know, at AOL in the strategy role where I wasn't operating a specific property, but I was helping. I would kind of dip in and help, um, you know, the managers, the GMs of the various properties with, you know, ch challenges or issues they're having or, or, you know, sit down with them and do the sort of strategic sessions where we're trying to figure out like, what do we need to do with this? Um, and so, you know, it, I, I think if you have a real deep intellectual curiosity, I think that, um, you know, venture is a, can be a really great role. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't think every investor is, you know, intellectually curious, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and certainly you can be very successful and not be intellectually curious at all. Um, so, uh, but um, I think that if you, you know, are just one of those people who just loves to like spend time reading and playing with new things and figuring out where things are going, um, it's a great role. And so, you know, given the experience I had had as a blogger and as a founder, uh, it seemed like a good fit for me. Um, at least I thought it would be a good fit. You never know until you get into the role. It was also, um, you know, having done, I'd done four startups and um, I didn't have necessarily something that I felt a burning desire to go and build. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that I didn't have ideas about things to build. It was that I didn't have something where I felt like if I spend five years on this and it doesn't work out, I'm going to be okay about it because I just love the idea. Like the idea took hold of me so strongly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I kind of set that, that threshold for myself of like, okay, if I'm going to do another startup, that's how strongly I have to feel about the idea. Yeah. Not a, well, I think it'll make money, which is a terrible reason to start a company yeah, in a weird yeah. way, you know, or I think it's kind of like, I just like to sort of like play around and see where it goes. It was really, I just feel like I have, this thing has to be in the world and I have to build it. And I, and if, you know, and I have to be okay with it, not being a success, like emotionally, um, because it, it's uh, as a founder, you have to be prepared for that. And, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go through that again, to be honest, for something that I wasn't extremely passionate about. Yeah. It's okay. To, like it's I, I think it'd be okay to fail at something that I really cared about in this weird way, mm -hmm. but to like fail at something that I was only sort of halfway into doing, like, what's the point of that? Right. That's like, that, that's no, there's no, there's, you get nothing out of that. Yeah. So my next question was actually going to be, do you see a world where you ever become an entrepreneur or operator again? I wouldn't say never. Um, I mean, I, you know, I am building something on the side right now uh, that, um, you know, if you've read my writings and things like that, like my, you know, uh, like I'm not, nothing to announce publicly, but it's nothing that I like, I'm, it's not stealth mode. I'm like not hiding it either, but, um, uh, but so I am working on something right now that I'm building with a group of people just as like a side project. And it has been fun to, you know, it's been fun to, to, to do that again. And, and frankly, to um, also stay a little bit up to date with, some of the new product management tools because yeah. uh, it's all different stuff than seven years, six, seven years ago, last time I was, sure. I was leading a product team. So you kind of get up to speed with all the new things that are going on. Uh, I think it'd be tougher to, for me to be a founder again. Mm -hmm. I just not sure. A friend of mine, who's another VC, he said, I'm not sure I want to play the product market fit lottery again. <laughs> uh, and so I'm just not sure about that. It's funny. Cause like, I'm obviously encouraging founders to do that all the time yeah. um, as an, as an investor. Uh, so, you know, to be perfectly honest, like I, I think I'm less likely to be, to take a role to, I'm less likely to become a founder again. Yeah. I could see a scenario where, you know, if like if there was a portfolio company that uh, was growing really fast, but needed someone to, you know, like the founder was like, not was doing well, but just like, wasn't necessarily the right person to be the CEO. Like I can imagine a scenario like that. I, I don't, I don't see anything in the portfolio like that right now, but 
you know, I, I think if there was something where it was working, but it needed somebody to, to really, you know, help kind of guide it through what are, can be a really treacherous, for, you know, like, you know, like the sort of like years one and two, you're building and finding product market fit, you know, it was like, you know, three and four, you're trying to like, not screw up the thing that's working. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, I, I could see that, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could be a founder again. Yeah. I'm very glad to be on this side of the table. I can uh, tell you every time I've done a startup, I've had a moment where I, I have, where you realize like you can't just quit. <laughs> um, but also that you're like, you're, you also somehow made yourself completely miserable. It's just like this moment of like, why, like, why did I do this again? Like, why did I do this again? I hate my life. I'm miserable. I'm working constantly. I'm not sleeping. I'm stressed out all the time. Uh, and, you know, I've been lucky enough that things have, um, you know, I've been, I've been, I've had things work out more often than not. Right. I've yeah, been lucky yeah. in that respect. Um, but every single time it's been years of, it can be, it can be years of, of agony. It's funny. I, I've actually heard like founders of pretty big companies say that, you know, they're like, Oh, I like, I'm thinking of this thing. It, it's probably, you know, massive, like, you know, potential billion dollar uh, opportunity, but I just don't feel like building it. So I, I don't feel like going through that again. A lot. And I, and I think that, um, you know, you see, you see this a little bit, maybe as, a, as on the founder on the investor side, right. Which is, you probably experienced this too, where, you have to make a lot of decisions all the time based on very little information, right? Like fair, you have to yeah. wing it a lot um, at every level, right? Yeah. Um, you just, and so, you know, as a founder, it's like that, but like way more so. Oh yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm someone who I don't stress out about things I can't control, but I stress out a lot about things I can control, you know, and as a founder, you have a lot of things you can control. A lot of decisions you have to make for which there is no going back, um, for which the implications are massive. And, and you know, you get to a point where it's not just you uh, who's affected, but it's right. like potentially like, you know, dozens or hundreds of people who have, you know, joined your journey. And if you get things wrong, like it's going to have massive implications for them. And that's the part where it's like, there can be a lot at stake. And so, um, you know, as an, as an investor, there's like, you're just a little bit removed from that process. So it can be emotionally a little healthier. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So we probably should have touched on this earlier, but yeah. that's okay. Um, so I guess what does Betaworks Ventures actually focus on, you know, as far as like stage of investment and, and sector, and what is your focus there? If you yeah. have like a, a sector or, you know, stage that you focus on more. So we are, um, so we we describe ourselves as uh, pre-seed and seed investors, but I would really say that our sweet spot is leading at pre-seed. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we love. It's a tough part of the market right now, um, but uh, not that every part isn't hard in some <laughs> way, but um, uh, uh, I think what you do is hard, uh, yeah. probably harder to be honest, but uh, but um, but we love to lead at pre-seed. We love to, and so, and I think there's actually relatively few funds that are, you know, their goal is to write the, you know, to anchor a pre-seed round rather than, you know, to write like a small check into, into it. Um, you know, we, we like to lead a pre-seed or co-lead a pre-seed depending on, on the structure of the round. Uh, and then we're thematic. Um, you know, we are, like I said, future of how we live, work and play online, which we translate into, um, you know, emerging consumer behaviors, um, usually powered by frontier technologies of one kind or another. Um, now, there can be categories that we invest in that are relatively mature, uh, like podcasting and social. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of funny to think about podcasting as a mature category, but we definitely you know view it as that right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then we're constantly looking at you know new things like um, new technologies and how they might enable new kinds of consumer experiences. So spatial audio is a big focus for us right now, paying a lot of attention to and, and playing with a lot of things. Um, not sure where the venture opportunities are, but we're, you know, seeing, playing with new apps and talking with people and, you know, reading Apple patents and that sort of thing yeah. to try to figure out, you know, if there's an opportunity, like, can we spot it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm my, I would say that my primary focus as an investor right now is on social gaming, kind of gaming platforms that enable people to, you know, play games together with their friends, uh, but also uh, create and share games, you know, with a, a wider audience. So, you know, Rec Room is one of the biggest investments that I've made. Yeah, uh, it's a big social gaming platform. Uh, they just raised a Series E, I think it was Sequoia and Index uh, led, uh, co-led, and um, 
you know, we invested at seed and actually I came to it as a, as a user initially, um, just oh, wow. discovered it when it first launched. Mm-hmm. Um, cause at the time it was a VR only, uh, game. I was just looking at every new game that launched for VR at the time. I would literally look at steam like almost every day and just install like whatever came out. Yeah. And when rec room came out, I was just, just loved it. Just absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, convinced my partners who were not gamers, neither of them were gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had, you know, they're in New York and, and they had a VR headset set up in the office there. And so I actually made them do a partner meeting in VR uh, <laughs> and um, and also play uh, Frisbee golf with me <laughs> in VR uh, yeah, yeah. just to like get the sense of what it was like. And uh, I was like, look, there's something here. And actually I'd flown up to Seattle uh, and met with the team and played Rec Room with them in their office mm-hmm. and uh, and managed to get an allocation of the deal, which is like, you know, it's like Sequoia and... Um, first round were already like in no i actually i think i introduced him to, to first round but uh sequoia had already i think committed mm-hmm. to us uh so it was a, a tough uh a tough round to get into yeah um, definitely but um but you know that's the thing that i'm most excited about i've been doing a newsletter called metaplay mm-hmm. which is about social gaming and where i've been writing um you know every i think it's going to be every like two to four weeks i'll publish something um uh, about you know what i'm seeing in social gaming or where the opportunities are and and uh you know, things that I think are interesting in the category. It is really where I see the biggest opportunity within gaming right now. You know, games are becoming um, social spaces. Um, they're becoming platforms. Uh, and it, it has implications for all sorts of things. I mean, partly it's implications for the business models, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you're a social platform, you want to be fully accessible to the widest audience possible, which means, um, you know, the games are free to play. Um, maybe they have right. a app purchase, in-game purchase, or battle pass, you know, kind of uh, for monetization. Um, and they're largely cross-platform. You want people to be able to play with their friends, whether their friends are on a phone or on a console or on a PC or whatever. And um, and so it is really changing the model around gaming in ways that I think are really um, important and I think underappreciated by people who are not in the gaming space. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the more like interesting or promising themes within social gaming that you're just the most excited about or that you're exploring? Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I'm looking at are um, like mobile, uh, mobile first uh, game creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, how can you have something, in fact, I'm an investor in something that is uh, a bit like, um, it's you can create mobile games on your phone and then share them with people and then people can remix them. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to lead to a new kind of um, mobile game creator slash influencer um, where you follow people who make really cool, interesting games and, you know, maybe you remix them yourself and create your own versions of them. And a bit like how people on TikTok are constantly riffing off, riffing off of each other um, and creating something that is, um, you know, it, it can be really even hard to identify, you know, sort of like the origins of, you can watch a TikTok video and it'll be like, you know, it'll, it'll be, you know, like a duet video, plus they're like referencing 10 different things. Yeah. Plus it's like, you know, it's a response to some other thing. And, and so there's like lots of layers to, to the experience that um, the more time you spend in it, the more you get out of it. Um, and I think that, you know, with gaming, it's not hard to see there being something similar where um, people are creating, you know, interesting new kind of fun mobile games. Um, I think some of them will be multiplayer where, um, you know, groups of people can either create games together or mm-hmm. play games together, uh, you know, that are being created in this way. Um, so I'm, I'm really bullish on that. I'm really interested to see, um, you know, how games are applied to, you know, creating uh, trust and uh, fostering relationships in remote teams. Um, if you think about work from home, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know we're, you know, uh, you know, we're getting vaccinated and, you know, we see the light at the end of the tunnel for COVID, yeah. uh, hopefully. Um, uh, and, um, you know, people are, a lot of people are going to start returning to offices and, and going back to something. I don't think we ever go back to normal, but like we go back to something that like, isn't what we experienced past year, right? Yeah. Like home. But I think work from home is not going to go away. I think that um, remote work is going to continue to be, a, you know, a huge thing. Um, but I do think that, you know, the ways in which you can, um, uh, I think, you know, people that work remotely being able to um, have better relationships and develop trust with each other is going to be really, really important. And I think games are a really great way to do that. And I, I don't just mean sort of like lightweight party games, like, you know, playing, you know, Pictionary or Werewolf or something like that, as much yeah. as I love Werewolf. I love uh, Werewolf too. 
you know, and I think those things are great for, you know, are fun. Um, but I actually think that, you know, if you think about what you do when you play games with other people, like real games, right? Like, you know, um, Animal Crossing or uh, Fortnite or Roblox or whatever, you know, whatever it is, is you have a chance to do something that isn't just about like, you know, you, you're not just, you're not face-to-face with the person necessarily, you're side-by-side, like you're doing something together, you're engaging in activity together and you have a chance to get to know somebody, you know, in a different context. And I think that's something that is, um, that happens it, it, when we work together in an office, that stuff happens in ways that we don't think about. It's not, it's not a, a you know, it happens naturally, right? Like just the, the, the kind of more casual interactions you have where you get to sort of get a sense of somebody and maybe start to build a little bit of trust around them or, or even who not to trust, right? Um, and I think, you know, gaming, I think can be one medium where we can start to at least um, in a directed way, start to have, to capture some of that stuff that we used to have, that used to happen in an undirected, casual way. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for, I'm looking for people building stuff uh, doing that. Yeah. So what do you think is, and you know, this might not be a question you can answer, right. But what do you yeah. think is sort of like the missing ingredient to sort of like make that next step as far as like the gamification of work? I don't mean gamification of work. Um, just to be clear, like I, I, sure. I say it was like a multiplayer, you know, breath of the wild type game, mm-hmm. like Skyrim type game yeah. where, you know, it wasn't your job to play the game, but you know, what you do to socialize and get to know other people that you work with is you go on a quest together or you, you know, you have like things that you play together um, to get to know each other. So there's some structure to it. So it's not this sort of this weird, awkward thing. Yeah. Um, now it requires people to want to play a game and well, maybe a lot of people don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be people who, I mean, just how they're like, you know, I, every place I've ever worked, there are always people who are like, I don't want to social like we're not friends and like we're not gonna you know like we're not gonna socialize at work at all right and we're just fine and sometimes I'm that person yeah (laughs) so it's it's okay um but uh uh so I I really mean it as like a as a as something that is like a space that sort of maybe surrounds work for people to be able to get to know each other Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily the work itself um you know gamifying work there's certainly like things that people are doing there um, it ends up being a lot of like streaks and like, you know, points and, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, which is fine. Um, I, I think for most workplaces, it probably is not, you can't necessarily quantify or gamify the work in a way that is going to sure. be um, effective and not like needlessly reductive, you know, for people. Like you certainly don't want to like, you know, like if you try to like gamify like your job, would that make you a better employee? Like yeah, probably not, you know, like probably not. Like you would just sort of like, you know, play towards the the points and, yeah, and yeah. streaks or something like that. You know, it's like, hey, like, you know, if I'm if my job is about how many founders I meet per week or whatever, like, you know, I'm just kind of like, I'll load up, I'll meet anybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's not good. Yeah, that's not, you know. Um, so it's more I, what I mean is more, more about like something uh, is is a space in which people are able to use the game as a way to get to know each other Got and build trust. Because again, in remote teams, you really don't have a good format for that. And and Zoom calls in a way are I think there's a limit to like how that works on a Zoom call for mm-hmm. for a bunch of reasons. One is group Zoom calls, you know, for socialization are generally really terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to have like multiple conversations. Um, there are people that uh, you know are shy or introverted and and mm-hmm. and uh feel uncomfortable whereas in a game if anything like gaming is a multiplayer gaming is a format that seems to really work for introverted people yeah um because it's less anxiety inducing they have structure they kind of have something they're trying to do as part of what they're um you know a, 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 like you're playing the game you're doing this thing and you also happen to be talking to the people you're playing with mm-hmm. um, you know it's sort of this incidental thing uh and um and so that's sort of what i have in mind about you know, I would love to see it. If, if I knew exactly what it what, what it was should be, I would go and build it myself, of course. But yeah, uh, but I don't. And so, and I think this is one of the hard things about being a VC is that, you know, if you knew what it was, you would just build it yourself and go make the billions of dollars. Um, and if you didn't have any idea what it should be, you wouldn't know where to look. Right. So you kind of have to have, like split this difference where you're like, I, you're kind of, you know, it's kind of like when like somebody loses something, they're like. I don't know, man, like, go look at, like, go look in that part of the house, you know, and you're like, it's, you kind of have to like, have enough of an idea of where something is to look, but not know exactly where it is. Yeah. And that is, it is frustrating. Uh, and you can spend time looking at the wrong, looking in the wrong areas. Um, and that happens, right. Um, and that's part of the job. But I think to have a sense of, of, you, you have to kind of have, you have to have some 
you have to look in some direction, mm-hmm. right? As an investor, you can't look in every direction at the same time, um, unless you're Tiger Global. <laughs> and, and what do you think about like a, a gather town? I looked at it. We didn't invest. Mm-hmm. I like it conceptually. Yeah. Um, I am not as much of a fan of skeuomorphism when it comes to um, remote work. I think that the problem with the remote work isn't that we need to recreate like a virtual office, literally like with like, you know, and, and try to have like little avatars that move around from like yeah. desk to desk. I don't think that is, I don't think it really solved a problem. And I know that I'm being reductive with like what Gather, you know, is yeah, doing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and so I see it as sort of, I see it in terms of like socialization and like, you know, um, events and things like that. I kind of get that. And we're investors in RoomKey, which is avatar based um, like events. I think for virtual work, um, I think you have to just focus on like what is, you know, is the most, what what makes people more, uh, what is most effective in helping people facilitating collaboration. I think having a virtual, you know, having a, an, an avatar that moves around a virtual office, whether it's 2D office or 3D office, it just seems like, it, it seems worse. It seems like the worst of both worlds to mm-hmm. me. <laughs> and I'm, and I, you know, and I, I, I keep a list of, these things. I have probably like 50 companies on this list of like virtual workspaces. I've looked at a lot of them. And, oh yeah. Um, you know, we're investors in with, which is, um, is an online like collaborative workspace, but it's not skeuomorphic in the sense of like, Hey, here's your desk. And like, here's your little pretend office. And like, if you want to talk to somebody, like move your avatar to like their office, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it like sounds kind of cool. And then you're like, I don't know, like, it's just, I'm not sure how this is like what problem exactly it solves, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, okay, so it's very clear that you are a gamer. Um, yeah. How did you get into gaming originally? And what gaming are you doing these days, if at all? Like, what games are you playing? So um, I so I started um, in the 70s. Um, my dad had a Pong, an original Pong uh, console. I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I only played one game right yeah. uh, and so he had one and so that was my ex- first experience of ever playing games and my dad um my dad was like a classic early adopter uh you know he was um you know he was a doctor he's from peru and just like loved um trying out like new gadgets and technology and stuff like that and so we were a household that i mean we got the first cd he had the first cd player ever sold in the us we had a vcr in like 1980 um Maybe that won't mean anything to you, but that was really early. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so when I was uh, six, five or six, in 1981, I had my tonsils removed and I had to be home at school for a week, mm-hmm. home from school for, for a week. And um, he got me an Atari 2600 to play. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that was really my first exposure to to gaming and, um, you know, and ended up getting an Atari 400 and Atari 800 and like getting, you know, into like more advanced games. My dad actually um, coded some games himself, oh, wow. like wrote this um, uh, like rabbit versus a hare, like, you know, <laughs> rabbit versus a turtle kind of racing game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and he would actually took me to some, there's like a local, I don't remember what it was called, but like local kind of like homebrew computer club, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, and um, the, uh, um, and, and, and so, you know, got some early exposure into that and, um, and then, you know, people forget, but like, you know, the gaming industry kind of collapsed in the U S like Atari went bankrupt yeah. and, um, and, you know, people lost a lot of interest. I still continue to like play arcade games and, um, you know, I used to go to an arcade all the time. That was not far. We used to bike to this arcade by my house. And, uh, and then, um, the Nintendo came out and must've been 87, 88 mm-hmm. and uh, the, the NES. And, um, and I convinced my uncle who was visiting us to like buy me one. I was like, I don't know how I pulled this <laughs> off. I was like, you know, he was like visiting from Peru and like took me to Toys R Us. And I was just like, hey, get me this. And, you know, like, yeah. um, I, I wasn't very persuasive as a child. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so, you know, and then, you know, and, and one of the things that like really struck me about to loop it kind of back into now is like how social of an experience, you know, gaming was like you would, you know, we'd play like legend of Zelda and 
you know, all like the kids, you'd have like a group of like six kids all huddle around the TV. Like one kid would be playing, we take yeah, turns, yeah. but there was a second role, which was the navigator. And so like, you know, Legend of Zelda, like the original one came with a map that came with, oh. you know, and so like, you'd have like, I'd be the kid with like the map and I'd be like, gotta <laughs> go here, you know, like, oh, you know, like go north, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it became this like collaborative experience, um, you know, uh, uh, and something that you, know, you did a lot, you know, you wanted to do with your friends. It was more yeah. fun, you know, with your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's how we spent our time. And so, um, you know, have, you know, had been a gamer, but it's something that kind of like phased in and out of my life. So, you know, I, I, I didn't really get back into gaming again, like really seriously mm-hmm. until the Xbox 360 and the PS3 mm-hmm. came back out. I didn't have a console in the nineties in college or anything like that. Didn't really game that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so miss a lot of that era of gaming, you know, like um, Super NES and, yeah. um, you know, Nintendo 64. Uh, you know, played a little bit like when I was at a friend's house, but like mm-hmm. just wasn't a thing. And then like when the Xbox 360 came out uh, and then the PS3 about a year later, I got really, like really back into gaming. I mm-hmm. remember like, um, you know, really loving like uh, Red Dead Redemption and, uh, you know, um, Skyrim and, and yeah. you know. Um, and just getting in Call of Duty, uh, you know, Call of Duty 2 and, and mo- first Modern Warfare. And um, and so I got really, you know, really back into gaming again. And um, I'd say now things I play well, a lot of Fortnite. Uh, <laughs> Matt Ball and I play uh, pretty regularly. <laughs> Played last night. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, we got one win, I'm happy to say. Uh, and um, I've also been playing, um, you know, a good amount of uh, stuff with my kids. So like they love to play Super Smash Bros, which mm-hmm. I'm terrible at. <laughs> um, it's funny. I'm like, they're not interested in Fortnite, which I'm good at. Uh, and uh, they're, and, and, uh, they're not playing, interested in playing that at all. Yeah. Um, That's surprising and, too for younger kids. Yeah. They're just not into shooter games. Yeah, okay. uh, you know, like my, my, my oldest who's 12, he's really into, he loves Skyrim, mm-hmm. loves Civilization. But like me, I love those games. Yeah. Um, I was really into Skyrim. It's like Skyrim, so it's great. Among my favorite games, like within the, I don't know, as far as I can remember. You know, one of the games I'm actually love someone to build would be a multiplayer Skyrim like, yeah, type yeah. game. And I don't mean, and like I've played Elder Scrolls online. Yeah. It's not that fun. <laughs> um, or certainly this, like, I don't want to like grind, just spend enough time grinding or buying gold or whatever to, yeah, to, yeah. to get to some place. What I'd love is for somebody to do a game that was, hey, this is it's a it's it's got the 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 narrative depth, uh, the mythos right of of a game like Skyrim, mm-hmm. um, and the epicness of the setting, uh, and let you and maybe a group of your friends play in that world. It doesn't have to be an MMO. It mm-hmm. can just be a game that you and your friends play. I think Valheim is maybe the closest that someone has gotten to this. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but Valheim, like the, the, the narrative is definitely a little bit of an afterthought. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's there, but it's not as, it's not like Skyrim. Right. Yeah. And, um, and the, and it's a procedurally generated world. So it's not like quite as, um, uh, uh, well-crafted maybe as, as Skyrim is in that mm-hmm. respect, but you could imagine like a game where it's like, Hey, you know, you and your friends go questing together, going back to my workplace, you know, my work game kind yeah, of idea. Yeah. Um, and I think people would love that. Um, I mean, you can imagine sort of saying like, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to be in this world. And it's, it's one of the things I'm actually like really fascinated by um, the role playing Grand Theft Auto world oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and how like and the thing I want to love about it is how strict people are that run the servers are about enforcing mm-hmm. like like if you're going to be on here and you're going to role play as like a person who, you know, runs a bodega, like you're going to be a person who runs a bodega. <laughs> like, you know, it's like like I just love the like uh like the the idea that like this is you know like if you're going to be participant in this like this this virtual world like uh and role play like you got to role play yeah uh and um and so i, I don't know like I, I guess i'm um i'm looking for things like that i would love to see more things like that i mean just even just as a player like i mean as an investor like you know i'm not necessarily expecting um you know the next uh, multiplayer skyrim to be like a pre-seed yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know gaming opportunity. i think right. that like it comes out of a big studio probably but that's the kind of things that i'm 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 really interested in and um and i think that this is there's definitely been this gap around multiplayer experiences where um they're either you know aimed at you know like like round based games right yeah. um or they are um you know th- these big mmos 
And um, I think something that gives people a shared narrative type experience, I think could be really powerful. I, I looked at something, it was too late stage for us to invest, um, but that is being built that I really liked. Um, that is kind of like that. It's like an, like an episodic multiplayer uh, game. It's not quite as, it's not RPG-ish in the sense that um, that Skyrim is, mm-hmm. but um, it's a game that you're meant to play with like a group of like three, with three of your friends and you will play the episodes through together. Yeah, no, I mean, that sounds absolutely amazing. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to shift gears uh, to something, you know, a bit more serious, a, b- a bit okay. away from games, right? And so, you know, there's been this just long-standing, you know, diversity issue, uh, both in the venture industry and in the gaming industry. Um, you know, but I think it makes sense to focus more on the the VC industry uh, yeah. for now. You know, and you and I have talked about this a bunch, um, but just generally, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of, you know, what do you see as some of the changes that are necessary to improve this, uh, you know, this this diversity issue within the industry? You know, and it seems like more VCs are at least thinking about the issue more, you know, which is is one step. Um, yeah. But, you know, how, and how significant do you think, you know, the industry is going to change going forward, you know, when you look out either, you know, next three to five years or even, even beyond that? Well, I mean, it has changed. I think it's changing slowly. So, I, you know, one of the things that, that's that's going on is that, um, you know, even as we start to um, have, you know, a, a better representation, I think, and who is getting, you know, seed investments, say, mm-hmm. um, you know, by the time you get to the sort of series, e, you know, those big monster, you know, someone's raising $500 million, right. um, you know, there's not a lot of diversity mm-hmm. at that level. Um, which, uh, you know, which means that like, when you think about like, when you look at how dollars are allocated on a percentage basis, right? You know, it's not hard to see that it's a, it's a relatively um, homogenous group right. of founders yeah. who are collecting the bulk of the venture dollars, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I have a $50 million fund. <laughs> um, there's, you know, I can't write a, a $500 million check right. and, you know, help address that part of the market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I can do is I can give, you know, more founders a chance to get on that path. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is recognizing how, um, you know, clickish and kind of cloistered this world can seem when you're on the outside of it. Yeah. And I remember what it was like to be on the outside of it. I definitely remember. It wasn't, it wasn't very long ago at all for me. Yeah. Uh, it was long, longer for me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and I think that it, part of it is about, you know, helping people understand um, a lot of the uh, nuance around how we talk in this community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the norms, um, the, the practices. Um, it's not just sort of like, what's a safe, what's a post money safe, like that yeah. stuff. It's really about um, how there is, you know, this is a subculture, right? And I was someone that grew up in subcultures. Uh, you know, I was like a teenage goth. Uh, <laughs> And then I was a punk and, and, uh, I cannot picture you as a goth, by the way, you know, it's a really not very common now, but I was saying the eighties and the nineties, it was a real thing where, um, children of like middle-class immigrants, like doctors and lawyers and yeah, stuff like yeah. that, or doctors. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I knew that were like, their parents were, they were coming from an immigrant family. Their parents were doctors, their you know parents were doctors and they were a goth. Interesting. Um, it was like a thing, um, uh, and uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure there's some sociological, you know, yeah. explanation for it. Uh, but, um, it, you know, but, but if you think about like how subcultures work, right? Um, whether it's, you know, punk or hip hop or whatever, there's always um, subtle cues about the signal, whether you belong in the group or not, right? Sure. How you, not just the clothes you wear, but how you wear the clothes, not just the words you say, but how you speak the words, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the references you get, the people that you know, the culture that you, you know, the things that you've, you're acquainted with and, and have, you know, spent time with and gotten to, you know, and, and are familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a, sort of like a, a, a fluency um, that there's a, there's a fluency disadvantage, maybe, yeah, that, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of that, that people, um, that a lot of founders, um, you know, from unrepre- underrepresented backgrounds have. Um, when it comes to this stuff. And so, you know, one of the things that I try to do is to, um, you know, try to look past 
that stuff mm-hmm. uh, and recognize that, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, and try to give opportunity to, 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 you know, at least get a pitch. Um, you know, even if it's like, you know, they may not understand how this world works, Yeah. but I can tell you um, one thing I like about what we, what we do at Betaworks is that we're not really that interested in the hot insider deal kind of world. Right. Right. You know, and you know what I'm talking about, right? It's I, like, I definitely know what you're talking about. It's, there's like a, there's sort of, and we know those, we know a lot of those investors and, yeah. you know, but there's like the hot founder that gets into the right, that they're already in the network. And yeah. then like all the usual suspects, you know, invest and then they feed it up to, you know, all the usual, you know, series A investors. And, yeah. and it's great. It's a great process and it works. Right. Um, and sometimes we are in, in those deals, not that we never do them, mm-hmm. but you know, we're just a lot more interested in things that um, are coming from, you know, uh, more unusual places, I yeah. guess. Um, and, you know, one of our most successful investments is a company called Hucking Face, a French AI company. Um, you know, they came to the U.S. because we were writing them a check. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they're not, you know, they were completely, they were non-networked, right? They didn't know anybody. Right. Um, and... Um, you know, that that's probably going to probably going to return the fund many times over that investment. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And hopefully we see more of these stories going forward, you know, and it, it encourages, you know, more investors just to, to take more chances. And to your point, hopefully that does start to flow up more to the later stage investments as well. Uh, You know, cause, cause I think that it's, um, I think that one of the tricky things is, is understanding what is looked for in this world. It's not just like, um, fa- investors being open to, you know, founders from different backgrounds or, or different places with different, you know, things, but also just what are the expectations around what is a venture scale opportunity, right? right like what, right. what is it, you know, what do you have to, how do you have to think about what you're doing, um, you know, to even map onto that? Mm-hmm. And again, I think that if it is a world that you are not familiar with, um, you may not be starting a business that has, you know, you, you have to be thinking about all that stuff when you want to go and raise money for a business, yeah. like you have to be building a business that fits into that, that world. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and has that opportunity. And so, you know, I, I think that things are getting better in the sense that like, uh, it, it, you know, there are definitely more educational materials and, you know, um, and things like that out there, but, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's going to, it's going to take, I think, um, I think it's really going to take, you know, giving a wider, as wide a set of people, wide a set of founders an opportunity so that they can start to get to those highest levels. Um, and that takes time just because it takes time to build a company that gets to that stage. Right. Um, but, you know, you have to start now. And I'm really proud of like the, the, the track record that we have, you know, at, at Betaworks um, in terms of, you know, investing in people of, of, you know, from underrepresented backgrounds, I'm one of the few Latinx VCs it's it, I've met like, I think two or three others that are Peruvian American, which is yeah, like kind yeah. of amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's even like a Peruvian, like venture capital scene now. Um, Interesting. Like I attended one of their conferences, I mean, online, but mm-hmm. I attended one of their conferences uh, last year. It was just like, Oh my God, I can't even like, this is a thing there now. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, like when I went, when I was younger, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, kind of amazing to see like that, that startup culture being exported, you know, to other places and, and starting to take root. Uh, and so, you know, I'm fundamentally optimistic, but, um, you know, it is, it is, uh, I, I think that there are a lot of, um, I, I'll say that there's a very reactionary strain within venture capital, much more conservative, both socially and politically than they want to let on. And, and you're I starting think to see another that. sort of like, you know, somewhat of a secret too, that I think a lot of people on the outside don't really, don't really yeah. understand. Yeah. And I, and I think that like, I, and I think that that's one of the things that is hard uh, for people to see is how, um, the, the, how non-monolithic, I'm trying to think of like a word to like describe, like politically, there are a lot of investors who are, um, you know, it's not, I mean, obviously like, I think we, VC sort of tends, I guess, like liberal democratic, right. But, uh, you know, to be Democrats, but, um, but I think that like, there's definitely a very, you know, like I said, reactionary libertarian to this. Um, and I think that, you know, I see VCs who are complaining about like woke mobs and things like that. And I'm like, I, I just, I, I, 
I think that there are so many other things that are real issues that we could be talking about um, right now. Um, and then when you dig into those founders, those investors backgrounds, you realize that like, oh yeah, they've been like this for a long time. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's, it's frustrating. Um, and I think that the, you know, it, and I think that there are a lot of, um, I think there are a lot of investors who feel threatened by, you know, a group of a, like a new generation of investors who have different set of priorities, different concerns and different values. Uh, and, um, and that, you know, aren't just investing for return, but are investing because of passion and because they, you know, want to see a different kind of world, you know, come out of, of this stuff. And that's, I think, hard for people that are like, feel like, ah, it should just be about like, you know, it's a meritocracy. And like, right. you know, if, you know, if, if certain, if a certain group of people aren't winning, it's, you know, not on my fault, yeah. you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and they never want to look within or looks, you know, the, the systematic issues that yeah. might be at play there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks. I think you gave a lot of very just, you know, great insights that I think a lot of people who aren't in VC, you know, don't really realize. Um, and so, you know, hopefully people listen long enough to, <laughs> to, to hear this part because yeah, it's, it's, a, it's that joke. It's like the only true, truly secure way to send a message is at the end of a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's an awesome note, uh, note to end on, you know, hopefully we will be able to see our, our multi multiplayer Skyrim game in, in the not too distant future. Yeah, I know um, we'll play it together. I, 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 uh, we have to, we'll have to, we'll have to play it. But yeah, Peter, thanks for taking the time. This is a really fun one. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me on.